Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions, as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I am the Chief Diversity Officer here at the AAVMC. So this is our first show of 2023 on March 1st. Yes, we took a pretty long extended break um, from the end of the year. Pandemic years are challenging. And so um, so we took a bit of a a chunk of time off. So um, but we're back now with a lot of shows um, coming uh, over the next couple of months. Um, and um, we have a lot of show ideas um, kind of on the whiteboard as well. So um, we are really excited about our eighth year of the podcast. When I started it years ago, I just told our CEO, Dr. Andy McCabe, um, I'm doing this podcast thing. If it doesn't work out, you'll never hear me mention it ever again. <laughs> Um, and so now it actually is one of our um, premier programs. And so um, so now we do talk about it often. But we really certainly ask you all whether you watch us from live or later on YouTube or listen to us on your favorite podcast app. So please continue doing so. Please continue to watch, listen, and engage as we continue our work in diversity, equity, and inclusion in the veterinary profession. So. Today is a very special show, as they all are, but today is very special as next week uh, is our annual conference, Catalyze 2023. And as a part of that uh, meeting, we have a number of awards that we give out um, at AAVMC. One of the longest awards that has been um, in our organization's history is the Iverson Bell Award. And so I want to tell you a little bit about um, uh, Dr. Bell um, before we get to our guest today. Um, So Dr. Iverson C. Bell Sr. was a graduate of Michigan State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. He was in the class of 1949. He was also a member of Tuskegee University's School of Veterinary Medicine's founding faculty, where he taught small animal medicine. Eventually, he, he and his wife settled in Terre Haute, Indiana, where he practiced small animal medicine at the Bell Animal Hospital for more than 35 years. In the early 1970s, Dr. Bell served as the vice president of the American Veterinary Medical Association, the first African-American to do so. Um, And during the 1970s, Dr. Bell inspired the very first meeting on diversity in veterinary medicine that really kind of led to the symposium that we host uh, annually in his honor now. Um, Since 1989, AAVMC has named an Iverson Bell awardee selected by their peers in academic veterinary medicine, and we really look to um, uh, honor DEI champions um, who are really kind of getting in there and doing the very hard work of um, really paying attention to diversity, creating equitable learning um, and working environments, and really focusing on inclusion. And for our guest today, belonging is also a really key part of this. So I am very, very excited to welcome my guest today, the 2023 Iverson Bell Awardee, Dr. Rustin Moore, Dean of the Ohio State University. Congratulations and welcome. Thank you, Lisa. And as I was listening to that, I, I feel extra special now that uh, this award started in 1989, which is the year I graduated from veterinary college. So that's wonderful. Uh, nice. It's a nice little uh, touch that I had forgotten. Yeah, wonderful. Well, as is our custom on the show, we allow our guests to tell us a bit about yourself. And um, why don't we kind of hear a little bit about you, Reston, and your story? Sure. So uh, by way of a little background, I uh, was born and raised in West Virginia. Uh, Very proud to say that uh, out of the 13 states that are in Appalachia, West Virginia is the only state fully encompassed in that region. So I proudly uh, tell that story. So I am a first generation college student. Um, I did uh, go to West Virginia University for my undergraduate degree in animal science. 
I then on a contract came to Ohio State where I already mentioned I graduated in 1989. From there, I went on to the University of Georgia for a year as an intern and then returned to Ohio State uh, in 1994, four-year combined uh, residency in equine surgery and a PhD. I then, uh, after that, went south and spent 12 years in the deep south in the great state of Louisiana, the the bayou, uh, where I had a wonderful time and uh, probably maybe started some of my initial uh, recognition of of diversity and the importance of it and, and things like that. But, you know, where I grew up, I mean, I grew up in a very homogeneous uh, small town. Uh, at that time, it was probably less than 4,000. Now it's probably less than 2,000. Uh, but it was a very tight knit group, uh, really a community. And, you know, as, as we all say, it takes a village to raise, raise kids. And so I think uh, I did benefit from that. And although my parents didn't go to college, um, mostly because they were married early and had, uh, my young, my older brother, um, at a young age, uh, but they were bound and determined that all three of us would go to college and we all did and uh, graduated. So that's a little bit about my background. I did grow up uh, on a small farm. It was really a hobby farm of mine, not theirs. Uh, so that's where I really got introduced to animals. And, you know, like probably the majority of veterinary students uh, knew by the time I was, you know, uh, six, eight years of age, that that's what I wanted to do and really never deviated from that. A lot of people ask me, well, did you always know you wanted to be a dean? Um, I will say I never even knew what a dean was um, until I came to veterinary school and then, you know, really didn't know that much <laughs> about it. So I did not aspire from a young age to be a dean. It just sort of happened naturally as I came to a Y in the road and had to take a choice of which direction my career would take me. Awesome. Well, did you know that you wanted to stay in academia? When I came to veterinary school in 1985, I now uh, tell people what I really wanted to be was a country vet, which I describe now as an Appalachian version of James Harriet. Um, (laughs) And I had every intention of going back and doing that. And I'm sure if I had, it would have been a rewarding career. Um, My interest changed over the, you know, probably every course, every professor I had. And uh, I left veterinary school thinking I wanted to uh, do equine internal medicine and I went to the University of Georgia, as I said, to do a internship. And it's I think it's always about the people you meet and those who influence you. Um, I came back here to do a surgery residency, not a medicine residency, uh, and to pursue a PhD and go into academia as opposed to going into private practice. All right. Okay. So tell us a little bit about, you, you know, you alluded to kind of um, starting to think about and, and work on some issues when you were in the South at LSU. Um, but tell us a little bit about that process of kind of getting involved in some of these issues. Well, you know, when I think back to where I grew up, I, again, grew up in a very homogeneous town and, and actually state. And, and actually going back all the way to the seventh grade, I remember going to a summer basketball camp and I went there two years in a row and it was at a, a small college couple hours away from where we lived. And somehow this, you know, whatever, 12-year-old towhead, small, short, non-basketball playing person, I always got the hustle award, never anything about tech, about talent. Um, but I I befriended uh, this college basketball player who was probably three times taller than me, like a six foot seven forward. His name was Harold Cooper from Virginia. And we would stay up all, you know, and my roommate was my best friend there at the camp would fall asleep and I'd be playing poker into the wee hours of the morning with this, with this, uh, and, and I don't know, we had this, I mean, it was African-American, um, guy, we kept in touch, wrote back and forth, you know, here I am, this little junior high person who's, I idolized this guy. And I, I, I think back, I mean, that might've been my first sort of not at the time, but now that I think back about it, really saying, you know, I'm comfortable around everybody. I, you know, I don't really, even though I didn't grow up around a diverse community uh, in the sense of a racial or ethnic one, it 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 sort of came natural to me, I guess, uh, just because I enjoyed people, you know, of all backgrounds. But I would say that my real interest in diversity probably started somewhere when I was transitioning from LSU here into leadership roles. And, you know, when you do that, you embark on your own self-learning and trying to improve yourself. And I started reading a lot of Scott Page's work 
uh, on diversity uh, out of that school up north. I can't talk. I can't say the name, but everybody <laughs> probably knows. And I was in, not only fascinated by his work, but also intrigued by uh, really what his research was showing about. I mean, and I'll boil it down, boil it down to something really simple, and that is the more diverse a team or an organization or whatever it might be. Uh, the better performing, higher performing, more productive, greater ideas, better solutions to complex problems, regardless of and, and you know if you can if you take a a very homogeneous group of experts in a given field and put them together on a team and you take people who have no background in that and put them together but they're diverse, they're going to outperform most every time. And so that's always resonated and 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 with me. But as I thought more about it, and you know particularly as I see what's happening in our community and that's not just in recent years and understanding healthcare disparities um you know people trust people who come from backgrounds like them and it's not always you know physical um appearances and things but that's certainly important and so you know the other thing that really drove me is that as a profession we are the whitest profession uh the as you know the profession after us are farmers so um you know you, we're actually whiter uh, and more homogeneous than farmers. And I, I say that with all respect, I'm not, you know, there's nothing yeah. uh, about that, but we're serving a very diverse population of people. And until we more closely resemble them and can relate to them uh, in all respects, we're not going to serve them the way that we could or should. And so that's really when I started thinking about that, even back in some ways, back in my days at LSU, where, um, you know, we did have diverse students, and then coming here and, and more more specifically, probably moving into my role as dean in, in September of 2015, which is really where I started to be more active. I would say before that I was a I was an ally, I was an ambassador, and I was probably a passive one, uh, not so active, um, and really felt that I needed to champion this initiative uh, at our college. And now one person can't do it all. Um, and it takes a team, it takes a village, and thank goodness I have that around me. With, But one of the first things I did is, you know, basically appointed someone that was essentially our chief diversity officer at an associate dean level. And, and we started that work, um, which, you know, I can go into, but certainly I want to, um, you know, pause for a minute and see if you want to ask any follow-up to anything I've said and direct the conversation as you'd like. <laughs> no, we'd love for you to keep going because, I mean, I think that this is, um, you know, you kind of talk a little bit about that transition that, you know, when we talk about um, DEI programming, oftentimes we kind of put a lot of this stuff on a continuum where, you know, here's um, problematic ideologies at one end and kind of um, folks that are culturally competent and cultural, um, culturally humble um, at the other end. And, and there is this kind of shift point where um, you can be an ally, but it's really kind of very, very passive, right? And then you kind of move to more active, um, an active role. I think that, that what you've said so far really talks about, I mean, or really kind of suggests this um, as you stepped into the deanship at Ohio State, um, that it was that something happened there where you really kind of said, this is a role where, um, you know, I can actually have some leadership on this, this topic. Yeah. So one of the first things, in addition to appointing the associate dean uh, that did have uh, inclusive excellence in her title, um, I also met with the admissions committee within a month of me becoming dean and basically went in with things I've already talked about, the evidence about higher performing teens and, and, and referencing Scott Page's work because, you know, faculty want data uh, and deserve data. But also the the other piece about, you know, we're not going to serve them as well as we could or should. And therefore, I'm asking you to be, you know, thoughtful about how you how we move forward in terms of uh, evaluating our applicants and seating our class. I didn't there were no directives about we got to do this or that. Uh, I just said, let's think more holistically about what we do. Now, I will say that um, about four seats down on this rectangular table to my left, there was a young faculty member, a male who raised his hand and said, so you're asking us to lower our standards. And I very quickly, but slowly and methodically looked around the entire table and asked, did anybody hear me say that? And no, nobody heard me say that. And 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 I and I, I, I tell that not because that 
that faculty member was bad. In fact, he's outstanding. Uh, and he's a, he's an award-winning teacher. People love him. But I, I think, you know, we all might have, not all, but some of us might have come from that spot at some point. And so I'm, I said, absolutely not. I'm not asking you to lower standards. I think what we need to do is just look more holistically and maybe remove barriers and hurdles that might be impacting everybody. And so that set us on a course. Uh, what, the one thing I could do and did do, deans can't do very much around admissions, uh, but they can require all members of the admissions team. And that includes, for us, it's probably close to 200 when you think of all the file reviewers and interviewers that are involved, um, maybe 150. Uh, they all have to take implicit bias and diversity training. Um, and, you know, we all have implicit biases. I have them. Uh, some of them surprised me, considering my personal life, that I would have these implicit biases. But apparently I do, and I need to be aware of them. Uh, so that's sort of started this cascade. And um, I'll just say over the course of three or four years, we went from uh, doing nothing special other than requiring the the training to the next year, um, slowly chipping away at the concept that um, interviewers needed access to the files of the applicants mm -hmm. uh, after they'd already been evaluated by file reviewers independently. Uh, and that was a slow process. And one of the things when I said, well, why do you need the, the access to the file? I mean, you're, you're asking standardized questions. Well, sometimes some of these people get stuck and they need a little help. And I'm like, okay, did you listen to what you just said? How do you determine who needs help? And is that fair? Uh, and how do you decide who you're going to help and who you're not? So over the course of three or four years, our interviewers now know nothing about our applicants when they come into the room. Yeah. Um, also, we have gotten rid in the file review of any evidence of any, like there's no name, there's no gender, there's no race, it's uh, no GPA because the GPA has already been evaluated separately. And so, you know, and nothing's perfect, but using standardized rubrics and things for scoring of the file review and the interview are helpful. But, you know, when you do an interview, you know, unless you're doing it with a muffled voice behind a, a, a screen, there's still going to be biases. And so we still haven't really figured that piece out yet. Uh, but we got rid of the GRE early on because it wasn't predictive and it's a barrier for financial reasons and access reasons and many other reasons. Um, and uh, we've also uh, here, not just on admissions, but you know, it's, it's one thing to recruit and admit a diverse class. It's another thing to make sure they can thrive. Yeah. And so all the other things that we've done, and this is just a few of them, but we've um, the first thing we did is we created a uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging committee of faculty, staff, and students to, you know, it shouldn't be me de deciding what programming we're going to do. It should be up to a group. And we also have a council, uh, which is a group of external people that serve on it. Actually, Andy McCabe serves on it. Uh, you know, Alan Kennedy uh, serves on it. We've had a number of people from all over. And they come in twice a year to really evaluate us and says, you know, this is what you're doing fine. This is something you can improve upon. And so it's really a, a way to be critiqued um, and self-reflective. Um, more recently, actually, we've established, um, and I give this uh, kudos to our two new leaders of the Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging, which are Dr. Sue Nabla, who happens to be in the AAVMC Leadership Academy right now, yeah. and Sandra Dawkins, who is our Director for Admissions and Recruitment. Uh, they have established a new group called the Student Leaders for Inclusive Excellence Leadership Group, and that's the leaders of all of the uh, affinity groups and all the clubs and organizations, the purpose of which is for them to come together on a regular basis. Um, and it provides mentorship, it provides support to them. Um, and also it helps all those student organizations sort of work together to create a sense of belonging, yeah. even though they may have very different backgrounds. Yeah. You know, one of those events we had a few years ago was a, it was a virtual event, but it was the uh, Fellowship of, of Christian Veterinarians and the Dr. J.H. Bias Black Affinity Group, it was a combined session that I attended. And I was, it, I was just fascinated. It was, it was really uh, great. So, you know, there's that. We have the Community of Inclusion Certificate Program, which um, I would say it's similar to Purdue's, although it's not as, as organ, as, uh, it's offered only internally. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's three different levels. We had, we've had uh, over 400 people uh, go through that, faculty, staff, and students. Um, and, you know, many 
other things. I think we have nine affinity groups now, wow. uh, which are student organized and faculty staff administratively supported. So there's the Black Affinity Group, the L the Latinx, uh, Asians in Vet Med, women, uh, parents, um, Native American, LGBTQ, and I think first generation college students. Um, and some are more active than others, but, um, you know, it's really important. And um, those are just some of the things, as well as changing imagery. Uh, you know, we our academic building, uh, which is where the first and second year students classrooms are, you know, the, the hallway was lined with everybody since our founding in 1885 who ever made it to full professor. And without going into detail, you can imagine the, what the wall looked like until recent years. And although it's great history, rich history, rich tradition, and we have preserved it, it's not on the walls where today's students who are now 35% underrepresented minority, 30% first generation, um, it's not in their face uh, where they might not feel that they belong there. So those are just some of the things that we've done. Uh, but I will say this work is never done. Uh, it's a continual journey and uh, it's it's a fun journey to be on. Oh, so much to unpack. Yes, the images, you know, um, there's always so much um, discourse around um, naming and, and images, naming of buildings on campuses and, and um, you know, uh, uh, the composite um, uh, pictures that are a lot at a lot of vet schools and, and kind of what they say about the school. Well, I don't think that folks say think, think that you know this is completely bad. This is really the history that there is, and we can see change. We know that you know within just I think it was less than five years after the passage of Title IX, there you know um, the number of women in vet school had tripled, right? And so we can see these things in those composite pictures. But when you are kind of a lonely only or one of few um, and and there's, you know, <laughs> onesies and twosies also <laughs> in the composite, it really um, does say, wow, this is, um, you know, have things changed a whole lot? Yeah, they have. But what does that really kind of look like? Right. And so um, and how do we con contemporize um you know, some of the images that are hanging in, in these institutions. I think that that is um, an area that is is really, really important to kind of people underestimate that. Right. right? Absolutely. And I, you know, I mean, it's a reverse thing, but I've been in situations because, you know, one of the things I, I think is important for all of us who are trying to be active learners in this space and, and constantly improve is that we have to be vulnerable. And so I've gone to conferences and I've gone to things where I might be the only lonely white person there. Yeah. And it is, um, you know, it is a bit t intimidating. Uh, I would say a lot intimidating. First of all, like, why are you here? <laughs> uh, or at least that's how I interpret it. Yeah, yeah, that's not sure. what they're thinking. And it's, so it does put, it does give one perspective um, whether you go in a boardroom in front of people who are completely different than you, and that could be either visual differences or things that you, they don't even know about you, but they, you might think they know about you. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, I would encourage everybody to become a little more vulnerable and put them themselves in places. Um, and I, here's one of the pieces of advice I give our students as they are departing upon graduation. I say something like, you know, please don't surround yourself with people for the sake of comfort and familiarity. Mm -hmm. Rather, sur surround yourself with people who are different uh, because you will learn things, you will grow, you will your life will be enriched. And it's really the easy thing is to go into a room and go sit with a bunch of people who look like you or have the same thing. It's much more uncomfortable uh, at least at first, uh, to go and walk up to somebody, a group that's completely different than you, but that's where you learn. That's where your life's enriched. And I try to emphasize that to our students. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. It's great. That's great life advice for everyone. Right. So what are some of the more challenging aspects that you've kind of faced around advancing, um, DEIB on your campus? I was going to make a joke, but I won't. <laughs> like, what what challenges? <laughs> challenges. 
Well, you know, I I, I think they range from subtle sure. uh, challenges to more overt challenges. So the challenge I mentioned before about, oh, we, we got to lower standards or decrease quality. Uh, and I will just say for the record, not that I should have to, our average GPA coming into veterinary school was is exactly the same since we've become much more diverse than it was before. No change. So, you know, no, we haven't decreased academic quality. I'd say we've increased quality in terms of breadth uh, of experiences. And that, you know, we know from research that that enriches the learning environment. So, I mean, anyway, um, you know, we've had situations, you know, we had a situation probably four or five years ago um, where um, it was when we were first starting the curricular review revision process. And we had uh, things up all over the college where people could, you know, write down on like poster boards or whatever, uh, just to make it easy and uh, and efficient. And there was a comment that that started that said something like, quit focusing on diversity and focus on experience for students, you know, coming in. And then it just sort of snowballed in the wrong direction. And I was, I remember vividly, I was actually at the dean's meeting in Florida uh, and my assistant let me know and she took a picture of it and sent it to me. And so here's one of the things that we all have to be prepared to do as a leader is be prepared to respond and to walk the talk. You know, if, if I had let that go, everybody who was diverse in whatever way would have said, oh, okay, well, no, but you know, he, he talks a good talk. And so basically, I actually took a picture, that picture, and then I blew it up where it could be read. And then, uh, and you know, said, this is not the, what we want to be as a college. It's not part of our values. And, and then in very, uh, I don't think it was bold cap and underline, but it was prominent. We will not stop focusing on diversity. Right. And so, you know, there's those type of things. And then there's when the you know, there's an alumnus or an alumna who are upset because they hear about diversity uh, and they, you know, I had a call once from, uh, well, actually, I didn't have a call. I had someone who was an, one of our alums who was repeatedly talking to one of our advancement professionals and really upset about the direction of the college and me because we were focused on diversity, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't reach out to me to have a conversation. So I reached out to him. And I said, I understand that you you're upset, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he told me, yeah, you're you're discriminating against white males. Well, fortunately, he had said that to my advancement professional. So I looked at the data. Actually, since we started this, our white males increased yeah. uh, as well as our underrepresented minorities and first gens and, and that. So he's like, oh, well, how can I help be part of telling that story? <laughs> and so my advice was. Uh, great. You know, I, what I would ask you is if you ever hear anything else, maybe seek data so you know the full story before drawing assumptions. So there, there's those types of things. And I, I have found this is where I, th- I think it's really important visual things. Yeah. When I describe the difference between equality and equity, and can show them. And sometimes it's with, you know, whatever's on the table at a restaurant. And I've done this. And I, I'll tell you this story. I, I was meeting with a, one of our alums who happens to be an emeritus faculty. And he said, Rustin, I really love what you're doing with the college, but I just don't get this equity and equality thing. And, that, you know, so I showed him. And the next thing he says, oh, great. Now, I want to talk about giving. Uh, and so, you know, I want to emphasize, and it's, you know, there's all sorts of pictorial things you can show. But Equality is where you give everybody the exact same thing, whether they need it or not. Whereas equity is you give them what they need. Yeah. And many of you have probably seen the imagery of, um, you know, somebody at a baseball game uh, and there's people on the outside of the fence and there's a tall person, a, sh- a kid and a short person, or maybe somebody in a wheelchair and the fence is solid. And so you give them all a stool of the same height and one person can still see in, but he's way so tall, he doesn't need to see in. Um, and it's not until you give him what you want by either giving him the, the, the right size of step stool or whatever, or when you get to justice, which is you make the fence see-through 
And that way you don't have to. And so that's just a visual thing that I think really is helpful. And, you know, you, you in some of our publications recently, we've tried to make that more relevant and um, applicable to the veterinary medical scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for mentioning that, because I think that that um, it is an area where people really struggle kind of understanding the, the difference between um, equality and, and equity and and also kind of fairness right and fairness is actually um for me i think of fairness more in terms of process almost like a verb um because it's actually the process that helps you get from equality to equity right um it's that realization that yes everybody might need a little something but they're going to need a shoe that actually fits their foot not, not the guy over there <laughs> right absolutely yeah, uh, and it's it, and it's it's really not. I mean, a lot of people think it's preferential treatment. It's not. You're giving them what they need to all be successful, to all feel they belong, to the, all for them to thrive. And we all have different needs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, your advice also about looking at the data is so um, so crucial. And I think that. Um, a lot of folks don't get to the data, right? We don't kind of get to understanding that for our applicant pool, we have found that white males actually experience quite a bit of privilege um, and favorable bias in, in um, admissions nationally here in the States, at least. But it also there's evidence of it um, globally at, at our international members. But this idea that we have to kind of lower standards, this deficit thinking, this um, um, these uh, things that really just don't hold up to um, the 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 scrutiny that is you know dealt with 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 data, right? We we know that yeah, I mean even at the national level, we have not seen any um, decrease in the average. Um, in the average um, uh, GPA, we haven't seen dramatic increases. We haven't seen any, um, you know, substantive increases in attrition. Like we're just kind of moving on. <laughs> what mm -hmm. Time goes by. Right. So, so what are some of the things that you still want to do at Ohio state? Well, I mean, in a, in a, in a, uh, ideal world, uh, you know, Oh, well, first of all, we still, we have a lot of work to do, uh, you know, on the, the house officer side, the graduate student side, the staff side and the faculty side. And, you know, you know, this happened the same with students that we always said, oh, the, the pipeline's not there. The pipeline's not there. Well, the pipeline might be there. We're just not maybe evaluating the pipeline or, you know, being equitable in how we support them. So I, I really believe we have to, uh, particularly on the faculty side, we have to be more deliberate uh, and we are uh, in trying to create a more diverse faculty. Uh, again, not lowering standards, but sort of enhancing, enriching the environment, uh, because that's what's going to inspire these uh, young people that we have coming into veterinary school when they see themselves in somebody to go on to be a, an instructor or a researcher or a dean. <laughs> um, and you know, so we have a lot of work to do there. I, I we we still have a lot of work to do on the student side in terms of truly reflecting the population of the United States and even the population of Ohio. Um, you know, if it, we we you know have a large applicant pool like this year was two thousand six hundred and fifty to seat one hundred and sixty five. So we have a lot of choice and, you know, and, and it's really hard to choose from that many people. You know, you, you got these rubrics and things. And I think you could probably take the top 500 and flip a coin and they'd all be great or probably yeah. the top thousand, maybe all of them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, trying to be more uh, reflective of uh, uh, and representative of the communities we serve. Uh, and and that's a, across a broad definition of diversity, not just the the standard ones that are visible that we tend to measure. Um, you know, I, I, I think also just when we no longer have to talk about this, which I know will not be in my lifetime, probably, or at least in my deanship time. Um, but you know, ultimately when we no longer have to talk about this and it's just like, really, we used to have to focus on that stuff that, and I know that's Pollyannish and, you know, um, you know, uh, but, uh, I really hope that I see that day because I think that would be the ultimate 
in making sure that we provide veterinary care to every animal of every person who needs it and deserves it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I also hope that we're preparing leaders. Uh, so today's students are going to be tomorrow's leaders. Uh, and they're going to be tomorrow's deans and associate deans and department chairs and hospital directors and specialists and people in the military and all these other things. So hopefully by the programming, we're helping to create the next generation of very culturally competent, culturally humble, diverse individuals that will lead the profession well beyond what we are today, um, which I think we're we're a great profession. I, you know, wouldn't change anything about it other than we need to be more diverse uh, and open and, and, and belonging. Um, you know, one of the things I think back about too, and I, I want to give a couple examples about this active versus passive bystander or active, you know, whatever champion or ally. I have found myself as I get more educated, therefore more confident um, so I'll give you an example. I'm on several boards and I won't say specifically which one, but a local board that I'm on. Uh, this was probably four years ago. I'm now the, the chair of the, the newly formed Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, Ac Accessibility and Belonging Committee of the board, <laughs> probably because I've been vocal. But the, the board president at the time was talking about diversity and had every positive intent. But they said to our board members of color, we need you to educate us. Mm. And so I had to like raise my virtual hand and say, you know, you know, I understand where you're coming from, I think. And I just want to say that it's not their responsibility to educate us. It's our responsibility to educate ourselves. We should not place that burden on them. Yeah. All of them via private chat. <laughs> thank, yeah, you, right. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so that's why I think that's really important. I was in another meeting on campus probably well in the fall, and it was all the deans and some high-level university leaders. And a, an individual was talking, and one of the, the one of the leaders uh, not running the meeting said something, and he was uh, giving a reference to um, Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon and said, you know, Ed McMahon was the straight guy, you know, and all this stuff. And anyway, this guy repeated, you know, the straight guy thing. And um, now I, I now know what he was referring to, you know, a straight guy in comedy is someone who sort of throws the guy or the woman, uh, you know, an opportunity to be funny. Um, but one of our deans who was new to us, um, texted me and said, did you hear what he said? And I said, yeah, I mean, and it bothered me too, but you know, I, I don't get all that been out of shape, but so I decided you know, when when it was my turn, I said, you know, I have I have a question and I have a comment. And so I asked the question. It was around diversity because, you know, what he was saying didn't exactly fit with what the other things were. And so I asked a very legitimate question. And then I said, and, and just to go back to your comment, um, you referenced a straight guy. And I know because I know him well, I said, I know you didn't mean it the way it came out. But, you know, I, I believe you should be aware that of how that could impact people. Um, probably five deans came up afterwards and said, you know, thank you for saying that, whatever. The very next morning, this was, so that was a Friday. On Saturday morning, the provost sent, she was at the meeting. She's African-American. She's an MD, an MPH, uh -huh. wonderful lady. She messaged both of us. And I was like, oh God. <laughs> I was like, what's <laughs> He says, thank you both for the whatever, I don't know how she described it, for taking a very, uh, she didn't use the word tense, but a potentially tense situation, addressing it and moving on, but making a point. And so I guess my encouragement is, um, you know, to everybody is be that active bystander, be that active champion, do it in a nice, humble, uh, polite, professional, collegial way. And there will be somebody in the room that, or the situation that learns something and there will be somebody that you're you have impacted their life yeah yeah that's that's great that's so great um thank you for that um so i have one last question for you and that is um you know as as a dean with lots of dean friends and colleagues what advice can you give your colleagues 
regarding DEI and their colleges, um, as well as, you know, beyond academia? Well, I, I, so one, I think is, you know, one, be, be a student of diversity and why it's important and understand the dynamics that that create the barriers to whatever it is, whether it's in veterinary school or it's in, you know, K through 12 or wherever it is. It could be in the police force or it could be wherever it is. Um, learn about it and um, don't rely on people who are marginalized or who have been historically minoritized or marginalized to educate you. Uh, there's a lot of resources out there. Use the World Wide Net web uh, and Google or Yahoo or whichever one you want. You could probably use chat, whatever the chat thing is, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and have it write you a thesis on it. Um, um, but be a, be a student. Uh, make yourself self-aware. Um, ask people, and I ask my team around me, you know, please, if you hear me say something, you know, in, in, inadvertently or hopefully not overtly, call me out on it. Uh, yeah. Feel free to do so in the presence of others. Um because we're all going to make mistakes. We're not perfect. Um, I think a lot of times people um, who are, I'll say, on the the the, journey, the early part of the journey oftentimes are afraid to do or say because of saying or doing the wrong thing. And I have found over the time, people know when you're good hearted and you're trying to do the right thing. Uh, so don't be paralyzed. Yeah by a, a, being a fearful, uh, uh, as long as you have the right intent. Um, I think learn from others. There's a lot of stuff happening. I, I, I learned from other deans. I mean, I, you know, I love my dear friend, Ruby Perry. Um, and, but there's many deans that, that have done this work. And they're not all, I mean, not all of the work is done at the dean level. There's a lot of associate deans and, and faculty. And, you know, I learned a lot from the students. Yeah. So uh, be a learner, be somebody that's willing to take a stance, uh, ask the hard questions of your admissions committee or your faculty search committees or or whatever. And, you know, you will get pushback. Um, and I I was warned of this or uh, at least uh, uh, guided by this. And they said and this was from people on that DEIB council, that external group. They said, when you start making progress and having success, you will get pushback. Yeah. Be ready for it. And that was very helpful because I have received pushback. I've described a few of them and I have been ready for it. Um, and you have to be. Um, so. Great, great advice. Oh, my goodness. So we, we've covered so many things we've covered, um, you know, the diversity tax of asking um, marginalized folks to uh, teach. Um, I tell people all the time, Beyonce's Internet is free. And if you just put in whatever search engine and you just put in a few keywords, I promise you, like the first page will get help you get get started. Like, I promise you it will. You know, but we've also talked about the difference between equity and equality. We've talked about kind of, um, you know, uh, course correcting or kind of calling folks out, but not it doesn't have to be you know, career ending, let's take it to Twitter and dox people. And, you know, it really is um, about moving things forward and taking people with you than it is about kind of just running out and run and dragging everyone with you. So thank you. Yeah, yeah no, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> thinking of other things and, you know, microaggressions as an example. <clears throat> and by the way, <clears throat> To, to whoever's watching and listening, you know, AAVMC has great resources. They have the glossary on uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging terms, which is really helpful. Uh, AVMA has Journey for Teams, which is a really great resource. Actually, I'm part of the AAEP DEI committee. And last night, <clears throat> so last month, we decided that we would take the first 15 minutes of our monthly meetings and go through a journey for one each month, a journey for teams as a group. Uh, so there's a lot of resources uh, out there. Um, so, you know, certainly think about how you might do that. But thinking about um, microaggressions and other things, you know, so I learned something recently that I had no idea. And uh, I had the opportunity. We were interviewing diversity consultants for the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium, which I'm on the board of. And there was a person uh, presenting to the group last about a week or two ago. 
And they use this exact phrase and we all use it. And it, it, it actually, you know, I think everybody knows why we use it for how we use it, but it also has a historical connotation that I didn't even know about. And that is low hanging fruit. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this, this person was an African male, American male, this consultant, and he used that term. And so at the end of the presentation, I, I said, you know, I, I just learned about this, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, you using the word, um, the phrase low hanging fruit, particularly with the historical connotation to slavery, but more importantly, lynching. Um, and, you know, for some, it n- nobody ever goes there. Others, it it really resonates with. So I have caught myself in not using that phraseology. I don't get all beat up about it if it, if somebody uses it because I know how they're intending it to be. Yeah. But there's there's those types of things that we use every day that have a historically a completely different meaning to some people, um, and I think that is part of being culturally competent. Yeah. 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 And the other thing I think one other thing I, you know, I, you know, with all the health and well-being issues we have in our profession, particularly emotional, um, mental, et cetera, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging is critical to well-being. Absolutely. And that's I don't think they can be teased apart. Um, they go hand in hand. So for all of you know, the deans or the leaders of whatever organization or even not even in the profession that might somehow stumble across this podcast. Um, I would uh, encourage people to to think about that uh, and really take that to heart. Because if we're going to improve mental and emotional wellness, which is a pandemic in our country, uh, and the uh, the actual pandemic has actually not helped this pandemic, <laughs> right? Uh, has made it worse. Uh, we have to create an inclusive. Uh, environment, whether it's at work or school or what, that people feel welcome and safe and comfortable, respected, valued, they can thrive. And I also think now, you know, we just keep adding words to these things, but (laughs) mattering is important. The idea of feeling that you matter or that you make a difference. Uh, So those, I just wanted to make sure we connected that to health and well-being. Oh, great. That's wonderful. And yeah, I mean, I think it is, um, you know, two things about some of the microaggressions, particularly like these these language pieces, like low hanging fruit. Um, one, I think it's important for folks to understand that that our collective use, because I mean, it's something that I grew up hearing as well, even as an African American, that it is so pervasive in our cultural language that. Um, you know, everybody has probably used it, not thinking at some point in time. So, you know, you can kind of give yourself some grace a bit, right? But you also need to be mindful that the fact that we do culturally use these types of terms all the time is really indicative of just how deeply rooted white supremacy is. I mean, it really, I mean, it's like, Everybody says these things, even like uh, another one being call a spade a spade, right? We, I don't use that one anymore. And so, um, and so, you know, it, it really is, um, frankly, a testament to the enduring nature of, of racism. Um, but, you know, because these things are so deeply rooted, um, you know, take the feedback, try to do better. But, you know, we all recognize, too, that it it takes some time and also recognize that these folks with diverse backgrounds, which is everyone to some degree, um, everybody's working on this. Like being a person of color, being queer, being old, being young doesn't exempt you (laughs) from any of this work. (laughs) Yeah, that brings up a couple of things I meant to say earlier. So when I first heard the phrase white privilege, now, this was already after I was on my diversity journey, but when I first heard it, I actually, and I will admit, I thought, okay, I'm white, I'm a guy, uh, but I worked my ass off. I came from Appalachia, from low middle class, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then I said to myself, you know, after thinking, what if I'd have been black or brown or openly gay, or whatever it was, would I be where I am today? Everything else exactly the same. 
That's when I said, no, I know I wouldn't. So, you know, we all have different privilege. Well, what should say we all do, but many people have different privileges. Yeah. And at first I was, I would say I was offended by it. Um, and then when I thought about it, I thought, no, 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 you know, I, I have, because I know if I'd have been different in some way back then, I would have not been where I am. Um, and that's something I think is, is, is really something we all should think about and not immediately get defensive. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Practice that empathy. Imagine being in those shoes. Right. So, well, well, Dr. Moore, this has been a wonderful conversation. I have had the pleasure of working with Rustin on a number of committees, certainly also his time on AAVMC's board. He's a delight to work with. And I am so happy and um, delighted to congratulate you on being named the 2023 Iverson Bell Awardee. So congratulations again, and thank you for being on the show. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for having me. And thank you, Lisa, for all the incredible work you have done and continue to do on behalf of AAVMC and more broadly. And uh, I will say it is a true honor uh, and very humbling to um, think about, you know, someone from my background um, being awarded or honored in this way. And I will say this is a team award. Uh, none of what we've done here at Ohio State or more broadly could be without the people who I've learned from and the people in the trenches here doing the hard work around admissions and mentoring and recruitment and all those things that we do. And we have a fabulous team here. Awesome. Awesome. Indeed you do. So, well, thank you again. And this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on air. Again, to Rustin Moore, thank you for joining me. And uh, just so that you know, we have lots of good stuff coming up again um, this spring. But I also wanted to refer you to um, episode 56. We talked a little bit about kind of moving from bystander to ally and champion. Um, episode 56 of our podcast is actually uh, features now a AVMA's Chief Diversity Officer, Dr. Dr. Latanya Craig and I in a conversation about um, what that process looks like. So be sure to go back and check out that episode of the pod. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Of course, you can also catch us on YouTube regularly and uh, be sure to like us so that more people can find uh, our podcast on the podcast app that you uh, subscribe to. So thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.